Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of the Here's the Thing Bo podcast. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today and I'm here with my producer slash editor Mitch Price. What's up? Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Well, how's it going, Mitch? How are you? How's your week, two weeks been? My two weeks have been fine. You know, it. They've. I don't know where they've gone. They've just kind of vanished. I feel like I was here a few days ago. I was and thinking the same thing. I feel like I recorded the last episode yesterday. So I know. Right. Yeah. So I have not been up to much eventful uh, things, except, well, I mean, maybe I should ask you how your week was because that has also been dominating my week. Yeah, it was my birthday. Yeah. I actually forgot about that until you gave me that meaningful look. And I was like, wait. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. What, what am I supposed to be remembering right now? Yeah, so we're recording on Friday, the... 23rd. 23rd of September. Uh, my birthday was on the Wednesday and it was a nice day because I took the day off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously there was the public holiday, which I didn't work on. And I have today off too because it was my little brother's high school graduation. So I've just had a nice couple of days off work, which has been nice. My birthday was like low key and pretty chill. Mm. It's like It was just like a nice chill day. I feel like, you know, my weeks are typically very fast paced and quite intense. So it was really good to just have a quiet day. Yeah, we just like, you know, ate some good food, went out, hung around. And then, and then went to the premiere of Don't Worry Darling, yes. the Sydney premiere, which was interesting. Very. Do we want to just do that now and follow up? Is there uh, anything else you want to say nah, about your let's week? let's get into it. Let's get let's into follow up. Bef- actually, wait, before I go into follow up, we don't have any recommendations slash dissuasions this week. So yeah, we're just going to skip that. I feel like we had such a long one last fortnight that that's fine. Yeah. Um, so let's get into follow-up because we really want to talk about Don't Worry Darling. If you listened to the most recent episode, you'd know that there was a lot of tea, BTS Don't Worry Darling tea, and then uh, like that's just on set. And then after the film came out, also there was a lot of bad reviews. Well, I'd say if I wrote a review, it'd probably also be a bad review. <laughs> okay, so we went to the premiere. First of all, like, I also want to point out how high budget the premiere was. I've been to a few premieres here and there, like just through pedestrian TV. But this is the first one that I went to that was so high budget. There was like cocktails. There was two VMAX cinemas worth of like media people. There were like influencers and TikTok stars. I spied some guy from Byron Bay's who I only know because I was forced to watch Byron Bay's for work. True. (laughs) I was like, I know that man. He was dressed like he should be at the Oscars, but this is just the Don't Worry Darling premiere and event in this George Street, Sydney. I'm not really in the know (laughs) with uh, this TikTok influencer crowd, but you can suss them out because they're dressed far more extravagantly. Yeah. The others, and there are people taking photos of them. I'm like, okay, I assume there's someone relatively. I feel important. like I know, I generally know a few of the reality stars through pedestrian TV, sure, but yeah. I don't really know any TikTok stars. Um, but it was wild. You enter, they got like all this set design. Yeah, there was like a little red carpet. There was like a TV because like the film set in the 50s and they made a small portion of it look like that. They had DJs, you know, drinks and beer and yeah, there was sodas a whole aesthetic. And popcorn. I was like, wow. Photographers. 
To be fair, the free like drinks and popcorns pretty standard. That's true because you want to butter them up, pun intended, perhaps <laughs> with the popcorn. Anyways, you want to you want to butter the the journalists up before you see. Uh, yeah, they want you to write nice with things. Free alcohol um, makes any movie more enjoyable, I suppose. So yeah, maybe they were trying to pump you full of cocktails so you couldn't see through all the plot holes. Yeah, okay. Don't worry, well, darling. we can get into that. Sure. <laughs> we'll try and keep this review like relatively spoiler free. Yes, because obviously, like that was the premiere, and this episode will come out only a few days after the film is released, and we don't want to spoil it for anybody who obviously cares about it and wants to watch it. Maybe in a few weeks' time, we can do another follow up that is not spoiler free mm-hmm. once everyone's kind of seen it. Okay, look, my first thoughts going in initially was. Wow, the pacing is fucked. Yes. It, like, does not take a second to actually set the scene. It just immediately throws you into the drama. Like, actually, wait, let's give some context. So, Don't Worry Darling is a thriller film. I feel like I should Very much so. Start Very off much with a that. psychological, high concept psychological thriller. Yeah. Which, I mean, we knew it was a thriller. I don't think we knew it was going to be as high concept as it was. I liked the concept. Without telling you what the concept was, I did like it after it was kind of revealed in the final parts of the movie. Mm. But, like, for the first literal, like, what, hour and a half of the film, nothing is fucking happening. Yes. Like, it is boring. And I was just like, I need, like, when will this movie end so I can leave? Because I am so bored. Precisely. No, that's my general, you know, summarized review is the first 90 minutes were bad and boring. And then the last half an hour... Is also bad, but it's exciting. Okay, I liked. Like, I liked the last half <laughs> okay, an hour. I, right. it's, you're so fair to find it bad. I think I was so. It's possible that I was like so used to the first ninety minutes of bad that I was blindsided, and so the last thirty minutes was like really good in comparison. Sure. I liked the last thirty minutes. I liked the concept. I think Olivia Wilde was trying to do something very interesting, and I liked what she was trying to say mm. in the movie. I thought was like it's politics. For the most part, not all of it, which I guess we can't really talk about because it'd be a huge spoiler. But there's a few things in there that I thought were like really good and really topical and kind of something that I haven't seen explored too much in like kind of films that aren't super indie. Like this is, you know, kind of a mainstream film. I feel like it did well with those politics considering how popular it is. But overall, it was bad. You're a bit more favorable. Yeah, I'm a little uh, bit more favorable. But it's funny because, again, not to get into things, but for the first 90 minutes, it's just all these questions being asked. Like, it's just throwing all these questions at you, like trying to confuse you a bit. And it's funny that you say that nothing happens because it's also extremely fast paced. Yeah. Nothing substantial happens, but there's also no breathing room. It cuts from scene to scene to scene. Uh, there's no, I feel like the tone is set so poorly because in, in film, there's like, there's two types of editing. There's like the shot cut to shot kind of editing, you know, within a scene. And there's also transitional editing where a scene moves to another scene and constantly like the scene would end and it would just immediately cut to something else. And then that scene would go by super quick. So mm. it's weird that it was so boring because it was so fast yes, paced. I thought this too, cause I was just like, I think I actually leaned over and said something to you about it in the film where I was just like, Jesus fucking Christ, they're not giving us a second, are they? Yeah, there's like, no breathing room. It's just like cuts from like moment to moment of intense thing happening, but none of them actually matter and you don't really care about any of them. So yeah. it's like, it's kind of a pointless feeling of claustrophobia because it's like moving really fast, yet nothing is happening. And also there's, in a way, the same thing is happening again and again. Like, I'm like, okay, you've built the tension. Mm. Can we like get to the point now? Like yeah. it's 90 minutes of building the tension to the point where you're bored which is the exact opposite of what tension and anticipation building is meant to be doing. 
And then when it finally gets to like the point, it's I look, I, I thought it was good at yeah. that point. And it's also I, it's very trite. Like the film is just so cliche. And it's trippy. very on the nose, yeah. Um there's not a lot of subtlety or nuance in it. But it is hard. I mean, I feel like we're dancing around the point. Uh, there's one thing I want to mention. I feel like we can talk about the first quarter of the film. I don't okay. think that's really spoilery. Uh, but the film kind of broadly is about uh, this very idyllic 1950s suburban company town. Everyone within the town, all the husbands work for this secret company that are doing, is supposedly doing important work, but none of the wives know what it is. They go off every day to work. They come back. They can't tell the wives about any of yeah, the work. Yeah, the wives, you know, keep the home clean, you know, make beautiful yeah. cooked dinners, have lots of steamy sex. Like, they're just perfect Living lives. in the perfect housewife, 1950s. Dream. Uh, dream. But then slowly- Things don't exactly. Well, not slowly. Very quickly. This that's is the so problem. true. That's this so is the true. Problem. Okay, so like, but, but things are what they seem, and then that's the kind of yeah. So like even tension. now, how we have just described the film, we've like set the scene of perfect idyllic life, and then things go. No, no, no. The movie doesn't actually do that. Mm. Within like three minutes of the film, you're already like, oh, things are all actually kind of fucked. Like they don't set the scene, mm. and I like. I feel like if I hadn't seen the trailer, I would be like, what the fuck is going on? Like, it's because we had prior knowledge and context of the film that the scene was set in our minds. But if you went in blind, like, it would be very confusing. And the reason I want to mention this part of the film or or give some kind of background is because I want to talk about, and I think maybe we'll talk about this more when more people have seen the movie, but, like, the one black character, the one woman who, within the first minutes, we just see kind of, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Tortured, brutalized on screen. Brutalized, manhandled. Yeah. Uh, maybe not tortured, but not she's- Not tortured within the film, but I feel like she's only there to be mm-hmm. subjected to- Yeah. Um, we went to- Misfortune. We went to the premiere with my coworker, Michael, and like the moment like she gets manhandled and tackled, we just looked at each other and we were like, yeah, took about 0.5 seconds for a black woman to be like abused in this movie. And she's the only black character. Like it's mm. just- But it's also tokenistic because she's the first one to perhaps see through what's going on. Yeah. She's the first so one it's... to realize something is amiss, mm. which like, you know, considering things we've said before about Nope and stuff, like we've talked about the fact that like- black characters in film have better threat assessment skills because that's a like reflection of their lives. So Mitch pointed out to me earlier, because initially I was like pretty outraged and I was like, this is fucked. Why is it always the first person to like get hurt as a black person? And Mitch was like, oh, well, like if you look at it, this is what like he reckons Olivia yeah, Wilde is trying certain, to do. Who knows? Who knows? Could be giving her too much credit as well, which is my Maybe suspicion. We were talking about it and we're like, okay, like maybe the reason that she's the first one to like bear the brunt of the bad things happening is because she's the first one to see through it because black people have better threat assessment. And I was like, okay, like, I mean, we are being very charitable, (laughs) Olivia Wilde, by assuming that. But like, it could have been done in a better way. It's pretty graphic as well. Yeah. Which is like, yeah, you just don't expect that. And I mean, I don't know if it's a spoiler to say it, but I feel like also maybe it's a trigger warning. Like, yeah, there is brutalization of a black person that you just don't expect and seems weirdly unnecessary for her to be the only black person in the film as well. It's very strange. And in short, I think Wilde is ultimately like fetishizing Mm -hmm. uh, the so-called ability of black women to see through social structures. But anyways, I mean, we can get into that later. I hope that was enjoyable, us dancing around all these kind of... It's hard uh, to talk about without spoiling it. I mean, we've yeah. like we've not spoiled spoiled it, but we've definitely no, like, said a couple of things. Okay, but well, um, the point is, yeah, it's not a very good movie. The reviews that we mentioned last week criticizing Olivia Wilde's direction are like. 
pretty spot on, I think. And we liked Booksmart, so we like are capable of liking Olivia Wilde's yes. direction, but it was poorly done. It was choppy. It well, was it's jarring. Like, it's like if the person who directed Booksmart directed a psychological thriller. Because <laughs> Booksmart is very fast-paced all over the place, but it really works for the coming-of-age uh, teen comedy feet, kind teen of comedy. dynamic doesn't movie. work for high-concept psychological thriller. Yeah, that requires a bit more work to make it accessible to an audience, you know. But I will say Florence Pugh was amazing. She was amazing. Like, her acting was incredible. She was the star of the movie. She was, like... I was watching her and I was like, yeah, I could watch you on screen forever. Mm. Like, you're just, you're so magnetic, you know? And I liked Harry Styles. Okay, that's your unpopular opinion. (laughs) But I can't get into why I liked it because that's spoilers. I didn't think. But it does something interesting with Harry Styles. I didn't think Harry Styles was an amazing actor, but I didn't think he was as bad as we were expecting. I suspect he'll be pretty bad in My Policeman, but Mm. in Don't Worry Darling, because to be fair, the role didn't require too much of him. It was mostly Florence Pugh that was, like, the lead. He wasn't in it that much. The fact that it's Harry Styles is very interesting. I'll leave it at that. Yes. We will talk about that more maybe in the next episode when it's less of a spoiler alert. Okay. Well, let's introduce today's topics. So, last week we did a long feature-length episode, a bit of a deep dive. This week we are going to do our news roundup. We're going to be alternating in our new kind of podcast format So, this week, the news topics that we have chosen are Black Ariel, which has been a huge thing in the news and the media, unfortunately. Like, I kind of hate- But unsurprisingly. Unsurprisingly. I I mean, it's kind of ridiculous how much everybody has lost their fucking minds in all the worst ways about Halle Bailey playing Ariel in The Little Mermaid. But we want to talk about that, like the racism around it, yes, but also a few weird stories- in relation to it, that have actually totally shifted my perception of the modern-day internet. Mm, Some tech dystopia. Some tech dystopia. We've surprisingly got... Yeah, that section is going to be on tech dystopia, despite it being about The Little Mermaid. Then after that, we are going to discuss the protests in Iran. So a woman was allegedly, quote-unquote, murdered by police for not wearing a hijab and a lot of discourse has sprung from that so we're going to get into that and then after that we are going to talk about the chemical imbalance myth which some of you may recall we've actually done a whole episode on but suddenly there's actually BTST I know some spicy follow-up some spicy <laughs> tea um, on like the chemical imbalance myth and a few new articles that have come out about that which yeah like surprisingly spicy for something that sounds so non-spicy um, so we want to talk about that too so those are three topics we'll discuss today let's get into it For those of you who live under a rock and have not seen all the wild trolls that have come out of this, Disney is releasing a live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. Side note, like, I'm not against this film. I'm actually really excited about it, but I don't know why we're getting 10,000 fucking live-action remakes of Mm. classic Disney movies. Just make a new movie. Yeah. But that's a rant for another day. Anyway, we're getting- Well, that's the nostalgia episode. Go listen (laughs) to that. you can go and listen to that. (laughs) Um, God, we've got an episode and everything. Yeah, so Disney is releasing a new Little Mermaid movie. And controversially, it stars Halle Bailey as Ariel. And she is black. And this has caused a lot of drama among fragile, racist white people who just absolutely cannot fathom- Ariel being black. They have been coming up 
with every delusion under the sun (laughs) to claim why it's like reasonable to be upset about a fictional mermaid having darker skin than expected. We expected backlash for this, but I honestly am kind of surprised by like how bad it is. I know you were saying before that it's not surprising, but I was like a little surprised because Disney was forced to disable dislikes on YouTube after it received almost 2 million in like the 48 hours after the trailer went up. It's been pretty vicious. Halle Bailey's been getting, you know, a lot of like awful hate and death threats. Hashtag not my Ariel is trending on Twitter, which by the way is so ridiculous because that started after like not my president, right? Yeah, like that Trump. started after Trump. I mean, maybe this is a slight tangent, but I am so over like racists and conservatives co-opting hashtags from like fairly progressive oh, movements. They're so good at it. That's what's so it's annoying. It's so annoying. Like not my aerial. You know, another example is like all the bodily autonomy stuff with vaccines and how people have been like my body, oh, my yeah. choice. Uh. And it's like, shut up, stop co-opting hashtags or like phrases from actually progressive movements. You freaks. But anyway, so that was trending. There's been weird think pieces and claims of people trying to legitimize racism with science. Oh, how original. God, there's just so much. I think, was it you, Mitch, that was telling me about the skin color? It was. I, it was you telling me about the mermaids not sure. being able to have black skin. Oh, yeah. It's, it's unscientific is, is the issue for many of these conservatives. They're yeah. just pro-science. And, you know, the argument is, and it's, you know, completely absurd, of course, that it's just scientifically inaccurate because a mermaid wouldn't have dark skin if they live under the sea, you know, to absorb uh, more light, I believe. Yeah, because mermaids are so scientific. Yeah, precisely. It's so strange. Um, But, I mean, that just goes hand in hand with the way conservatives are able to co-opt progressive slogans. Mm -hmm. Because conservatism is just, uh, it has no basis. Yeah. It will just grab onto anything that it can. And as soon as that thing gets... uh, criticized or gets debunked in some way they'll just move on to another thing whereas leftism at least attempts to have some basis in what they see as fact conservatives are very happy just to just to say say bullshit and that gets them pretty far Mm -hmm. yeah it's like i mean i like actually compiled a list of some of the racist criticisms i've seen with the new ariel the first one is what about little ginger girls what about their representation (laughs) gingers and redheads you know they get made fun of they get called rangers they get told they have no soul what about like representation for redheaded girls this is ginger erasure which is so funny because she is ginger though like, she still has red hair. It's very obvious in the trailer that her braids are red. And, like, not even, like, artificial red. They look ginger. So, it's not about ginger girl representation. It's about white girl representation. Because she does represent gingers. She's got ginger hair. So, that's already an eye roll. And also, like, Anna from Frozen is ginger. And Merida from Brave is ginger. So, y'all have ginger representation. I just say it. Just say it's because it's white. Just like, say just, you just, just don't like black people. Yeah. Like, just... That's what irks me is the bullshit. Because it's like, you're just dancing around the point. If you're going to be a racist, say it with your whole chest so that it's easier to call you out. Instead of hiding behind these, like, bullshit claims of, I'm not racist. I just want representation for gingers. There was also like, I mean, look, the science one, I'm not even going to bother because there's just no, yeah, whatever. But I've also seen claims of like, you know, it's just about accuracy. It's about canon. It's about being true to the source material, Um, which I think is probably the claim that like people give the most legitimacy to. And it's the one that's like the hardest to straight out core racist. It is racist. 
But, you know, people will like be like, I'm not racist. I just like canon. I just, you know, with, with any fandom, with any franchise, I just like canon. Which is ridiculous with The Little Mermaid because if we really cared about being true to source material, we'd actually make Ariel a man because The Little Mermaid is actually about unrequited gay love. Like the author was gay and in love with his friend who he couldn't be with. It was unrequited because the man was straight and then he wrote The Little Mermaid. That's literally the basis of the story. So if we really want to be true to source material and to canon and represent the author's like story as accurately as possible, we'd make Ariel a man. And imagine how much that would piss people off. Like a gay mermaid love story. Honestly, we actually should make that. That sounds fantastic. That actually, I'd watch that. that. (laughs) I'd watch the shit out of that. But yeah, like it's just none of it's real. And there's another one that I've seen, which I'm only going to mention because I think it's funny. And it's that Ariel is Danish. She's Danish. We should cast a Danish person. Halle Bailey isn't Danish. And I'm like, okay, well, first of all, if we cast a black Danish person, like, would you still be upset? Probably. And second of all, Danish isn't really like an ethnicity. You know what? I, it's not like a, it's not a race is what I mean to say. It's kind of like with Belle and Beauty and the Beast. Like Emma Watson played Belle, who is meant to be French. And nobody was like, Emma Watson's not French. She's British because it's like she's white. And we just see all of these European identities as white. So it's, again, people like refusing to admit that the problem is that they're just racist. They're like, oh, no, we just want it to be Danish, which is accurate. But you don't care about other princesses and their European ancestry, like Rapunzel is meant to be German, or you've cast, you know, a voice actor that's American. Like, none of that matters. It's, of course, only when it's a black actress. Of course. Actually, I think this is a really good case study of just how conservative rhetoric Yeah, operates. they just, it's like a hydra. You yeah. cut off one head and three more appear and they all just spout I bullshit. Know. You just have, like, a thousand arguments coming from every conceivable direction at once and one of them will stick for one person. Mm-hmm. And all you only need one argument to lampoon it to confirm the biases you already have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's also why conservatives are so frustrating to argue with. Because in some ways, they're, they're, very, they're very good. They're very good at just coming up with the most nonsensical, disingenuous, bad faith arguments. I mean, are you seeing like relation to this? Uh, you talk about the ginger erasure. People say, oh, like hashtag, it's okay to be white. <laughs> How could that be racist? I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying it's okay. Do you disagree that it's okay to be white? Yeah. Like, it's, why? So, it's a gaslighty. Very frustrating. Um, and I just want to go back as well. This is personal opinion. I do not care about canon. You're not going to convince me with that argument. <laughs> I don't care about canon. In fact, if you're making a new movie, why wouldn't you change it? Just watch the original movie. Yeah. If you want the exact same thing. Exactly. I mean, I don't think they should be making a new movie at all. I'm sure there's plenty of stories that could be told. Anyways, that's just That's the tangent. thing. All these like upset, just go and watch the original Little Mermaid. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. You still have your like original mermaid. We're not erasing her from existence and then creating this one. So you're forced to only watch this one. Like it's so stupid because just don't watch it. Like if you're upset, just don't watch it. But- Alas, nobody gives a fuck about actually being reasonable. But my final point on just like these silly conservatives is that the whole thing is bullshit anyway because there actually is a black mermaid in The Little Mermaid. So all this stuff about it's unscientific, all these ideas of like the woke future forcing blackness upon us or whatever is ridiculous because in between 1992 and 1994, there was an anime Little Mermaid series starring Ariel. And one of her Little Mermaid friends was black and she was also deaf and communicated in sign language. And that was like, a that's a canon character. She's in the canon. There you go. So obviously, black mermaids, if we really want to like actually debate this, they can exist anyway in the fictionalized world of the Little Mermaid. So none of these arguments stand up at all. And I just, 
I feel like I don't need to debunk them, obviously, to our audience because none of you give a fuck about the fact that Ariel is black. But I feel like I just had to do it so that you guys all also have the ammunition to call out everybody else. But the reason that we're actually talking about The Little Mermaid today is because of a very concerning tweet that Mitch found. Very, very frightening and in equal parts disturbingly fascinating. There was a tweet that was doing around. Thankfully, now the account has been suspended, but it was quite popular on Twitter by a user of the name of Jesse, where he talks about a friend who has used artificial intelligence to literally erase the black actress and turn her into a white girl for the trailer and suggests that they, once the movie comes out very quickly, they'll be able to do this for the entire movie. Here's the tweet specifically. Quote, credits to our meme, our artificial intelligence scientist, at 10 gazillion IQ, he fixed the Little Mermaid and turned the woke actor into a ginger white girl. He says he can fix the whole movie when it comes out with a four times a 6,000, I think that's a computer thing, in 24 hours. It's over for woke cells. Can I just say woke cells infuriates me because incels is a right-wing conservative thing. And to like say woke cells and then like put together woke and incel, which are obviously like it's oxymoronic. Yeah, well, that's, that's how they work. That's I how hate they operate. it. <laughs> and they included a very convincing clip where they've used this machine learning, artificial intelligence to turn the black actress white. Yeah, it's freaky. Like it's they freaky actually have, it is. they've animated over her and you're watching like a white girl acting in the trailer and like Halle Bailey's just like, it's just been edited over her. It's like a deep fake. And this is like- incredibly concerning especially you know for us we often talk about you know media on this show media theory media studies and this has really been an emerging discourse within the field with uh, artificial intelligence and the way computer generated imagery is increasingly flooding our social media platforms you know first we saw it with deep fakes a few years ago that was the big concern deep fakes where you can replace a, the face of someone within a video or a clip with any other face of yeah, your choosing. Yeah, do it quite convincingly. So that was a concern, firstly, in this like post-truth era where people can just create- uh, Fake you know, shit. Political, you know, yeah, exactly. You can make Obama do whatever you want. And then there was also a concern with uh, like a new form of revenge porn. Yeah, and like deep faking like- People's faces into porn, yeah, especially you celebrities. Know, exactly. Or people you know, and then perhaps using those images to like blackmail them. Like yeah. very Icky. disgusting stuff. And then with this, you know, machine learning, AI generated imagery, the possibility for literally erasing people of color from film from anywhere on the internet is increasingly seeming like a very accessible possibility. Yeah. Which is frightening and i think we're going to see more and more of this in the coming months or in the coming years i think it's gonna become more pervasive i found it really disturbing because i think it says a lot of this new era of internet and online worlds i mean we've talked about filter bubbles before and this idea that obviously like the internet is increasingly algorithmic and you can kind of be in your own bubble and also get funnels down certain rabbit holes and blah 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 like it's increasingly personalized that can be quite scary especially with like the youtube outright pipeline kind of shit like Mm. that's all very concerning and i feel like this is kind of the next step in this new age internet where white people now have the tools and the resources to literally create online aryan societies because that's what they've done they've literally edited out 
Halle Bailey from The Little Mermaid and edited it into a white girl and they've created, like, they've turned this media into, like, an Aryan media. And that's fucking creepy. Like, creepy and disturbing, but also concerning in the way that, like, you can just do that now. Like, you can just well, erase blackness, it. right? Yeah. And anyone can do it. You know, in the past, when these new types of technologies would emerge, typically uh, from, you know, military technologies or, or private industries, there's almost, like, a few years, a gap in between the technology emerging and the technology uh, becoming accessible to, you know, the consumer-facing public. However, in recent years, that gap has just gotten increasingly small and small. You know, about a year ago or even less, I became aware of this text-to-image, like, AI-generated imagery. And then within, it seemed, a couple of months, suddenly, you know, that whole Dali craze became a huge Mm. meme where people were making, you know, the most absurd, amusing imagery. Uh, yeah. and that and that just became accessible. No longer did you need these uh, massive computers with incredible graphics cards. Suddenly, you could just do it on the cloud. You could just go into a service that would do it for you. So, while I'm all for tech being extremely accessible, we are seeing the consequences of this when it go- comes into the hands of, of racists. Yeah, which is concerningly a lot of people. Yeah. It's interesting with the idea of accessible technology and the way technology has changed so much over time. Because I even think about that with like Snapchat filters and like TikTok filters and how far they've come. And I've seen a few people call out filters, especially on TikTok, that make you look white. Mm. Especially because I'm on like brown talk. So I see a lot of brown girls talking about it. And there are so many filters now that are literally designed to make you look white because that is obviously desirable and the beauty standard. And that's you know, I feel like just kind of the beginning of this kind of stuff. Like that was like the first step with like, yeah, you know, it's easy to look white now. You don't even have to edit your pics. You can just like put a filter and like in your videos be talking and stuff and you look Caucasian. (laughs) Like it's crazy. And now we're at the point where you can just edit black people out of media that they star in, that they create, which is terrifying and has a lot of worrying implications for like these really isolated communities. Yeah. Online, which are increasingly becoming like fractured as well. Like we're obviously seeing a lot of polarization in politics, which I'm not saying is a good or bad thing. It's just like it is what's happening. Like you're kind of either pretty racist or like anti-racist a lot of the time, like if you're active in a political space. And I feel like this polarization is leading to fucked things like this where... I, I can't get over the audacity of it, to be yeah. honest. Well, in these filter bubbles, not only can you exclude people of color or whatever, whoever you'd like, but now you can also completely erase them from the media you watch. If you, if you want, you can just never have to look at them again. And that right? Is That's terrifying. terrifying. And just perhaps to conclude, there was a follow-up tweet uh, from this Jesse, which, you know, he, he completely changes his language. He tries to make it seem like it's all yeah, it blew academic. Up. It all blew up. He said, quote, note for Twitter, this is for purely educational purposes. Please do not misinterpret this in a racist way. I am just amazed by my high IQ friend who works with artificial intelligence and the stuff he can make and wanted to show people his field of study, unquote. It's not racist. I just wanted to show the potential of AI to erase black people. But if you're interpreting that in a racist way, that's you misinterpreting it. That's a you problem. The one who literally said it's over for work sales. Uh, (laughs) He was able to fix the whole movie, uh, turn the 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 work actor, the quote work actor, Oh, man. It's also funny because, like, I love how woke is being used synonymously for black. Oh, yeah. Like, Halle Bailey is only being called woke because she's black. Like, the woke actor for the audacity of existing as a black woman. Yeah, she's too political for me. Yeah, it's like we could have a whole nother fucking episode on just, like, the inherent politicizing of black bodies, right? The fact that she's politicized simply for existing as a black woman. 
All right, let's move on to the next topic for today, which is the Iranian protests. I have like a few things I want to say about this, actually, and I think it's a pretty interesting and sad and infuriating discourse. So just to give you a bit of context, in the capital city of Iran, Tehran, the so-called morality police arrested and detained Kurdish woman Masa Amini over apparently not wearing the hijab to the state's standard. It is the law to cover your hair in Iran, and they said that hers was too loose. So while she was in police custody, Masa apparently just fell into a coma. The police are saying that she just had a heart attack, coincidentally, while in police custody. She was rushed to the hospital where she died. Obviously, advocates and her family and witnesses that were there at the scene are saying the police beat her to death. They hit her over the head. She had concussion-like symptoms. She passed out and then she died. Uh, Witnesses are corroborating it. It seems like that's what happened. But Iranian police are denying this and saying she had a heart attack, even though her family have said that she has absolutely no history of any heart diseases. So this, which obviously very clearly seems to be a case of police brutality, has triggered huge protests, not just in Tehran now, but like all over Iran, uh, mostly in Kurdish districts, like the one Masa was from, where they're burning down police stations. Women are chopping their hair off in front of large crowds. Uh, women are mass defying the hijab law and taking off the hijab. Some women are burning hijabs in public in these big bonfires. At the time of recording this on Friday afternoon, there have been between 17 and 31 deaths at the protest. According, to, I know that's like a big jump, but it's according to different reports. So human rights organizations kind of on the ground are saying that around 30, 31 people have died. But then like the Iranian newspapers are saying 17. So Well, either number is absurd. So. Either number is bad. Yeah, they're all bad. And there's... A lot of talk from kind of all sides of, I think, like the parties involved in this conversation that is really interesting. So the first one I want to talk about is the US, which has obviously made this all about themselves. Uh, So the US has, in response to police killing Masa, has introduced sanctions on Iran. I want to read to you a quote that a spokesperson of the White House National Security Council, because I think it's quite hypocritical and ironic. So they said, Masa Amini's death after injury sustained while in police custody for wearing an quote-unquote improper hijab is an appalling and egregious affront to human rights. Women in Iran should have the right to wear what they want, free from violence or harassment. Iran must end its use of violence against women for exercising their fundamental rights. I also Whoa. want to mention that the spokesperson said that her death in police custody specifically was appalling, an appalling affront to human rights. Obviously hilarious, like, given the fucking deaths in police custody that happen in America and also how America is treating its women at the moment with, like, Roe v. Wade and the fact that abortion has been criminalized in so many states and that even miscarriages are criminalized because you can't really tell the difference between a miscarriage and abortion. They're physiologically the same thing. So it's just an interesting thing where, like, America has been very quick to condemn Iran, which there's nothing wrong with condemning Iran. Obviously, their laws are fucked. And like, it is pretty bullshit to force women to wear anything. And like, that's like, the criticism of Iran is not the problem. The problem is America being on a moral high horse when they, I'm sure, hurt just as many people, if not more, than the Iranian police do in Iran. The Iranian president has responded to America's condemnation of this obvious act of brutality and it's one of those things where it's like fucked because in a way like what he's saying is kind of true but he has no right 
to say it because he's also part of the problem. So speaking to a news conference, um, he said, there is freedom of expression in Iran, but acts of chaos are unacceptable. So already we're tone policing protesters right now being like, you can protest peacefully against state violence, but the moment you also are violent, then what you're doing is unacceptable. And now we're going to tone police you and lose the message of your actions and how you've expressed it. He said Martha's death must be, quote, unquote, steadfastly investigated, but he also accused the US of double standards. So he said, what about the death of Americans at the hands of US law enforcement? Did all these deaths get investigated? This is such a strange, like, case of pointing fingers. It's like, Mm. it's not like any of them are in the right. It's like, yeah, well, you criticize us for, you know, deaths in custody. What about your deaths in custody? It's like, well, what about deaths in custody is just period. Yeah, and this is what's frustrating because it's like, I mean, yeah, like he's right in the sense that the US is being very hypocritical, but it's like he's not saying that from like a progressive point of view. He's just saying, don't come for me for letting my soldiers murder women when you also let your soldiers If you're allowed to do it, then why can't I do it? Yeah, it's childish and ridiculous and frustrating that he is like co-opting, you know, progressive things that other people are saying and using it for his own justifications of why they're not properly investigating this woman's death. He also mentioned deaths of women in Britain as well that weren't investigated. And then he called for the, quote, same standard, unquote, around the world and dealing with such deaths at the hands of authorities. So he's saying, you are holding me to a higher standard than you hold Western countries, which is like fucking beyond the point. (laughs) Like, Mm. it doesn't matter if the outrage is, you feel is more intense than other countries, like, the outrage is valid because a woman is dead. Like you're losing sight of the issue right now because you're obviously deflecting the point because you're not actually arguing real politics here. But um, the tone policing I think is very interesting because it's not just coming from the Iranian president in regards to angry protesters. I'm also seeing it myself in the Muslim community and I want to bring it up here because it's really frustrating. So these women in Iran, whether or not they're Muslim doesn't really matter, but some women are burning hijabs. And I've seen a lot of anger from like Western Muslims, so a lot of Muslims living in other countries, particularly in the US, that are really angered by this. And they're like, you know what? Like, I totally agree that women shouldn't be forced to wear the hijab and the way these women are treated is really horrible, but it's disrespectful to burn hijabs. Like the hijab is not your oppressor. The oppressor is your oppressor. So, and you know, for us, like hijabs are actually really meaningful and I wear a hijab. I, not me, I as in these people wear a hijab you know for like quite sacred reasons and so it's upsetting to see these women burn a hijab like you don't need to bring in our hijab into this which i really like think is just tone policing Mm. because i also wear a hijab and like does it hurt to see a hijab burned just like a little bit because i wear one and i'm obviously a little bit biased but i would never be like you are being disrespectful for burning a hijab because to them the hijab isn't sacred it's a it's a vessel of oppression yeah it's literally a symbol of this woman's death is her hijab like that is ultimately what led to her death obviously like it's the people that led to her death but for these people it's like it's because she wore a hijab that she was targeted surely in this context the hijab ceases to be sacred Exactly. And so it does frustrate me, like, seeing other Muslim people be like, the hijab is meaningful to me, therefore you can't burn it. Because I'm like, you know what else is meaningful to me? Like, women's agency and autonomy and the right to choose. And this hijab ceases to be a hijab the moment it becomes a tool of oppression anyway. So that's just a piece of cloth. Because hijab is a concept anyway. Yes. Like, hijab is not the physical scarf 
that you put on. Hijab is a concept. It's a praxis. It's, it's a, a way of yes, life. Yes. It's, you know, a way that you exist in the world. It's a way that you approach the way your your body is commodified. And at least for me, you know, so like a cloth that a woman is forced to wear to me is not a hijab anyway. So I don't care if she burns it because that's her right to protest the brutalization of herself and women like herself for existing in this state that is misogynistic and, you know, like hurting them. So it's just, it's bullshit and it's people tone policing. It's people getting caught up in like civility politics. And I'm sorry, but nobody needs to be civil or kind when women are being murdered for simply not wearing the hijab correctly or whatever. You should always be siding with protesters against their oppressive states. And if you come up with like, what if that, like you're on the wrong side, Mm. you know, you're just on the wrong side. You should always be on the side of the oppressed and you're going to put your fucking feelings aside and your own. And this is, it's a fragility, right? This is like, it's a form of fragility to be like, a bit triggered and upset by the hijab burning as a hijab wearing person, but like suck it up. You're like, you get the freedom to, you're wearing what you want right now. And these women deserve that freedom as well. Like it just frustrates me. Do you think it's partly because Western women who wear the hijab, you know, of course, like Muslim women, you know, will suffer increased discrimination. Do you think it's because almost because they've invested so much into it? Yes, partly? absolutely. Yeah. I, I, and I, you know, I can sympathize. Yeah, I can exactly. empathize. Like I understand where the fragility has come from. Because, like, yeah, like, you feel defensive of a hijab just because you've had to fight so much, like, discrimination to wear yours. You know, I feel that. Like, I'm very defensive of my hijab because I'm constantly being made to justify why I wear it. Because in a Western world, people love to tell you that you're, like, aiding oppression by wearing one and that, you know, you're oppressed and you must have, like, all this internalized misogyny. And so, like, you try so fucking hard to prove every day in countries like Australia or America that your hijab is your choice and not a tool of oppression only for it to then be used as a tool of oppression in Iran and that's like the stereotype you're fighting against in the West and it's frustrating because now you're like oh these women are burning their hijabs and it's undoing all the work I've done to try and make the hijab not look like this and I like can empathize with that but that doesn't make it right yes Because, like, yeah, I get it. I also exist in these same situations. I've also experienced a lot of discrimination, racism, Islamophobia, whatever you want to call it, for wearing a hijab in public and in private. But, like, we exist in different contexts, you know. And no matter what discrimination I'm facing right now, it is not nearly as bad as what these women are facing in Iran. So, obviously, they can do what the fuck they want to fight that. Like, I think people need to get over themselves and see the bigger picture in one of these things. It's a complicated issue for sure because the hijab is politicized everywhere you go. You know, it's always going to be politicized in one way or another. And as Muslim women, it's a burden that we shouldn't have to carry because it's specifically Muslim women that have to carry this burden. It's not Muslim men that have to carry this burden. Like being a Muslim woman is hard. Being a visibly Muslim woman by wearing a hijab, especially in the West, is even harder. But I think it's one of those things where solidarity is really important because nobody understands the plight of being a Muslim woman as women who live in Muslim societies. Like... Those are your sisters. Like, have some fucking solidarity, you know? So that's really frustrating to me. But it also kind of brings this into actually the next part that I wanted to talk about as well, which is like, yeah, so this is, you know, undoing the work we've done, quote unquote, with like normalizing the hijab or making the hijab, you know, not look like a tool of oppression. 
But like white feminists are fucking loving this yeah. and it is disgusting. Yes. <laughs> like I guess like it's funny in the sense that like how predictable. It's so typical, yeah. So typical, but I have seen so many like white feminists jump on this. I've never seen them so riled up about an issue since Roe v. Wade, like sharing all these videos of women in Iran burning hijabs and chopping their hair off and being like, yes, which is that part is fine. But it's really interesting how white feminists are loving this opportunity to treat Iran like this backwards, barbaric country in comparison to where they live, America, which is obviously more progressive, right? It's this really Orientalist kind of view of like the East as like this fucking wild, you know, kind of... You say Wild West? I was going to say Wild West, (laughs) and then I was like, I just said East. (laughs) But you get what I mean. Like, you know, this fucking uncivilized jungle of a place where all these women, you know, have no choice in what they wear and like... Blah, blah, blah. And it's a white feminist wet dream because then she gets mm, to be the savior. Yes. She's been waiting for this opportunity to be like, see, I was right. Hijabs are oppressive. The yes. West is better because mm. I'm not going to get attacked and detained and shot or whatever for what I wear, which is like also just not true. Yes. <laughs> it's also just not true because if we look at America, the police brutality is a huge issue. Police powers being abused is a huge issue. Minorities being targeted is a huge issue. In Iran, it's women that like don't adhere to the state's you know concept of hijab, and in America, it's often black and Latina women. Like it's just not white women. It's just because white women aren't affected as deeply by this issue as everybody else, and they're like, oh, it doesn't exist here. And it's like, look to your own country. I think there's a huge difference between like amplifying the voices of Iranian protesters and then straight up contributing to harmful racist stereotypes of Iran, which mm-hmm. is what white feminists are doing because it makes them look like better feminists to themselves, right? And they get to feel like a savior and they get to feel woke by comparison because like they would never support that. Yeah. It really validates them. It and validates this is, them. I feel like it's this issue, you know, the issue of the hijab that differentiates the kind of disingenuous white feminists from the people who want to see like real substantial change. Because throughout the past couple of decades, what we have seen with white feminists is actually an aligning with colonialism and imperialism. That when after 9-11, when the war in Iraq uh, went ahead, that was, of course, supported by conservatives, by jingoists, but it was also supported, you know, manipulatively by so-called feminists who see this as a cause to liberate Eastern women. Yeah, we got to liberate, liberate the Arab women from their Muslim from the hijab. Yeah. yeah, so actually, the same in Afghanistan, right? That's why they justify occupation yes. in Afghanistan because we got to save the women from the Taliban. Exactly. Suddenly, the White House is full of feminists who need to liberate and save all these women who are being oppressed by yeah. the hijab, and. This is always, it always comes to this. We see this play out so many times. Exactly. Afghanistan was the exact same thing where the exact same discourses emerge. And you see it actually, I mean, I imagine how difficult it is to be a Muslim woman because you're attacked seemingly from both sides. From literally everyone, including your own, like including your own. You know, um, I can say that like almost all the hate I get online for my hijab is typically from like conservative Muslim men. Because it's also just misogyny. Like, Muslim women get it from fucking everyone. They get it from the racist colonial white people. They get it from white feminists. They get it from other Muslim women with internalized misogyny who have defensiveness about their own lives. They get it from Muslim men who seek to control them uh, misogynistically by weaponizing religion. Like, it's just you're crucified from every angle. And so, like I said before, with 
Muslim women who wear hijabs in the West now getting a bit like upset by all of this. It's like, yeah, like I can understand why, but like it's one of those things where you're just going to grow the fuck up. Like you just got to suck it up and like get over your fragility and think about other people and think about like your religion. Like this is what frustrates me. It's like if you are Muslim like me, then you know that compulsion in this religion is not okay. Like it's haram, right? Like it's impermissible. So your own, like, if you really, if this is really about religion and you really care about your hijab and you're a practicing Muslim, then you should be disgusted and opposed to what's happening here. And you Mm -hmm. should be siding with the oppressed anyway. So it's frustrating when you see Muslim people lose the point a little bit here and get a bit caught up in their own feelings because by virtue of being Muslim, you should care about these Iranian women and they should be like your priority. But there is something, and look, this is why I can understand, not agree with, but understand a lot of these Western Muslims' perspective is because I've seen TikToks now where racist white feminists are telling hijabis who support the protesters in Iran to take off their own hijabs in solidarity. Uh, I've seen comments, I've seen videos where like, it's not even just white feminists, to be honest. It's just a lot of racist people that are like like Muslim women who wear a hijab will put up videos like talking about the situation in Iran, talking about the women there, supporting the protest, supporting, you know, women's inherent right to choose whatever that choice is. And then people in the comments being like, if you really care, you would take off your hijab in solidarity with them. And this is why this is why hijabi women have such a hard fucking time. Because they still have to deal with all of this politics, even when they outright openly support these Iranian protesters and they're told they don't support them enough. They're not real feminists unless they ditch their hijab themselves because that hijab is an oppressive tool. Like you just, it's frustrating. You're just going in circles, right? It's interesting because a lot of these racists and white feminists who are telling Muslim women to ditch their hijabs if they really want to support Iranian women also have said nothing about like the bans on hijabs. And that's just, that's just what shows you that this is all disingenuous. Because if you really cared about bodily autonomy, like you would have prior to this been supportive of Muslim women in France you know who are dealing with hijab bans you'd be supportive of Muslim women in any western country who are constantly having their bodies hijabs choices politicized but if you're silent on all of that and now that Iran's having these protests you're like yes support these women ban the hijab it's just it's so disingenuous it's so obvious that you don't care and that your only stake in this conversation is to demonize the east and it's interesting too because I'm like these women are Iranian like you know that right they're still from Iran so you're like demonizing the country that they're from and that they are like you obviously are missing the point the government is bad like misogyny is bad yes police actually this is an ACAB issue yes very much so and like people are getting lost in that it's like it's an Iranian issue it's an ACAB issue (laughs) really it's an all cops are fucking evil issue the same way it is in America and in any other country with police brutality like the core of this issue is a misogyny obviously and militant states and weaponizing religion but it's also police powers because the people who are at the center of this are the quote-unquote morality police so it's these people's jobs they're like cops who like roam the streets and have the right to like arrest detain and interrogate women pretty much specifically like it's I think I'm not sure if it's meant to be specifically women but it is women for you know apparently not being modest enough whatever way they deem that to be, it doesn't even have to be like the hijab specifically. It can be kind of anything that they deem immodest. Like this is our issue. This is what you should be calling out. Not like just the hijab as a whole. Cause it's not, like I said before, hijab is a praxis. This is a piece of cloth. It's not actually really about that. It's about gender power. Yeah, exactly. And that's how I think you can reconcile outrage against both the banning of hijabs in places like France or the forcing or the mandating of hijabs in places like 
uh, Iran is if you're just anti-state, if you're just against coercion and dogmatic forcing of certain practices, because it should be a banned agency. You should be able to do either. Yeah. So I guess the point of that is a don't fall into white feminist thinking and demonize an entire kind of like race, ethnicity or country of people because of the actions of their government. B, you can be supportive of women not wearing a hijab without demonizing all women who wear hijabs. And C, let's not forget about the injustices in our own countries when we then go out and demonize other countries. And that is very specifically directed at Americans who love to hate on Iran without even discussing things like Roe v. Wade in their own country or Black Lives Matter in their own country. So for our final story, I wanted to talk about a little bit of follow-up from a previous episode that we did, actually five episodes ago, episode 54, titled Are Mental Illness and Capitalism Linked? Because there has been some pretty spicy tea. The yassification of serotonin. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Spicy to me anyways, but I think it's pretty interesting. First, first, just some recap for that Let's do some context building. Some context. Okay, so in that episode on mental illness and capitalism, we discussed the chemical imbalance myth, also known as the serotonin hypothesis of depression or the serotonin theory. Um, And we were pretty critical of the chemical imbalance theory, which ultimately suggested that the reason for depression is simply because your brain doesn't produce enough serotonin. We've um, all heard it. I feel like everyone it. online has heard, oh, like, I can't help being depressed. I just, you know, it's just a chemical imbalance. I, know, I just yeah. don't have serotonin. Like, the, we've all heard that precisely. idea. We probably, a lot of you probably believe it until quite recently. Yeah, there's something wrong with your brain. It just doesn't produce enough happy chemicals. And that's shit. And that sucks. And that's something that you need to get medicated for. There is, of course, as we discussed on that episode, plenty wrong with this theory. Firstly, it makes depression and many related pathologies a completely individualized issue. It says your brain is at fault. This is why you're depressed. This is why you feel bad. And it doesn't really take into account larger social contexts or environmental conditions, which kind of leads into the second issue. It doesn't attempt to actually identify a cause outside of a purely like Uh, biological or chemical like discourse it only addresses the effect of depression it kind of takes on a circular logic yeah it's kind of like with headaches and and panadol right like you take a panadol to treat a headache but your headache is not because you don't have enough paracetamol in your body right exactly yes that's kind of the that's the criticism is like low serotonin is a symptom of depression but it's not the cause exactly i think i heard it explained another way which is You know, like if I have a rash, I can put a steroid cream on it to get rid of the rash. But the rash isn't caused by a lack of steroid cream. Exactly. Um, It's not a a steroid deficit in my body that reduces the rash. Exactly. The treatment isn't the cause. Exactly. And like, yes, you know, people with depression feel sad and there is a lack of serotonin, but that is not the issue in and of itself. Uh, Which leads to perhaps the most insidious effect and the biggest issue with the theory, which has gained so much prevalence in both academic and mainstream discourse in the past decades and decades, uh, is that it creates an unhealthy and massively profitable reliance on big pharma and antidepressants, which, to be said... Do help many people. Is you know, yeah, like, as with I the said before, like you know, SSRIs do alleviate symptoms of depression. They are helpful to people. They do save lives. This isn't necessarily a criticism of like if SSRIs help you. It's more that your lack of serotonin is not just an inherent thing that happens when you're depressed. There's more to this. 
And, you know, when you look at perhaps more socially conscious uh, psychiatry and and, uh, psychology discourses, they're looking at how perhaps depression or these feelings of melancholia are concerningly, but, you know, realistically natural, uh, normal reactions to the trauma of capitalism, the Anthropocene, climate change, you know. Perhaps it's not a purely individualized, privatized issue, like the privatization of depression. Perhaps it's not that. Perhaps depression is caused or is more of a social pathology. Yeah, well, it's more just like you having depression isn't a reflection on you. It is not a flaw in your body. It's maybe a natural response to the collective trauma we all experience under capitalism. Yes. And of course, you know, it integrates you into a very profitable relationship with Big Pharma and pharmacology. So, anyways, we released that episode back in February. And since then, there has been some pretty major developments in the chemical imbalance discourse. I don't think it was because of our episode, but... <laughs> Should we take credit for it? It was. Here's the thing, though, that actually yes. caused all this. So, that episode was in February. And then a couple of months ago in July... There was a massive academic article by a few scientists from University College London in the journal Molecular Psychiatry, which essentially debunked the chemical imbalance theory entirely. Go off kings and yes. queens. I don't know. Go off. I don't even want to say royalty. Royalty. Go, go off. off the monarchy just, of psychology. Go off. I'm just going to end it at go off. <laughs> so the paper was titled, quote, The Serotonin Theory of Depression, a Systematic Umbrella Review of the Evidence. And the report was a very comprehensive meta-analysis which looked at a large amount of studies and essentially, in its conclusion, found no evidence uh, in any of these studies that supported the theory of a chemical imbalance uh, hypothesis, which... I mean, so many of us have known for a long time, but yeah. this really was the prominent discourse. Well, our episode on that was really controversial. Yes. So I did get a few upset messages from people who I think found it really jarring that their entire relationship with their mental health like was being challenged. Yeah. Because for a lot of people, especially I think our age as well, like mm. young people, especially in their early 20s or in their 20s, like that millennial Gen Z middle ground have grown up on the Tumblr days where like to end the stigma of a mental illness, we would tell our parents oh, like, I, it's like any other physical illness. Like, it's like I'm sick and I need yes. this medication. It has nothing to do with you or me or our surroundings. Like, it's just my brain doesn't create it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't say the things you're saying now if I had a broken leg. Like, it's like the same thing. Exactly. Which it, it's Which not. Is a, you know, and that's a very convincing argument. And yeah, I think so that's- people are really attached to the chemical imbalance theory because it's it makes comfortable. It real. Not just that, it's comfortable to think that like, this has nothing to do with me. I don't need to do anything to fix this. I just need to take my SSRIs. And especially in a time of identity politics where people's mental illness is now part of their identity uh, because now there's like neurotypical, neurodivergent ideas. Like people are attached to their mental illness. So the thought that perhaps it's not an inherent part of their brain chemistry and that actually it's related to socio-political causes, it's scary for people. It, it forces them to reevaluate their relationship with their bodies. So, yeah, like this is a big deal and it was a big deal even when we recorded the episode, like probably one of our most controversial episodes yeah. ever, I would say, in terms of the responses that we got. Yeah, I think it's worth addressing that here. You know, some people, uh, not many, you know, but some people were like, are you saying that like, mental illness isn't real. Yeah, because my mental illness is definitely real. We're saying the opposite. In fact, it's incredibly real. In fact, we can see the traces of it, not just in your head, but in the real material world outside of you. Yeah. That's where the mental illness also exists. Yeah, like we're not undermining what mental illness you have. We're just talking about the way it's categorized, diagnosed and treated. Yeah, it manifests in the social 
exterior world. Anyways, yeah, but anyway, anyways. getting back to the point. Anyway, so this article, which proved that there was no substantial evidence supporting the theory, caused a large media frenzy, not so much in Australia, but especially in America. Uh, there were so many articles coming out like the chemical imbalance theory is dead. The serotonin theory is no longer like what is psychiatry going to do? And then other articles were kind of like psychiatrists stopped believing in the serotonin theory ages ago and didn't tell us. Like there's almost this conspiracy uh, or we've been talking about this theory and taking it on for so long. But did the psychiatrist ever actually believe this? Which is the very interesting part and kind of what I want to bring up here is that... It seems that all the psychiatrists, not so much psychologists, I feel like psychologists have kind of got this for a while, but, you know, our our criticism is ultimately aimed at psychiatrists who are really integrated into the the big pharma uh, mega industry, are almost trying to distance themselves from that theory, almost suggesting that they never believed it. Which Um, is very interesting because up until recently, apparently everyone did and now you don't. Exactly. So what I find more interesting than that article is one published just before that bombshell article by a few of the same scientists, also by the University College London. So the discourse is no longer, quote, is the chemical imbalance theory true, unquote. It's now, quote, did anyone actually believe this in the first place? What a pivot. I I feel a little bit gaslit because I I know know. y'all did. I know y'all believed it. Don't I know. Exactly. They're gaslighting us. And I think it is worth uh, quoting this article at length. And okay. I'll include it in the show notes. Yes, down long below. quote incoming. It's, pub- it's open access, so you can all read this. But this is a quote. Quote, the debate about whether or not the serotonin theory was promoted by the psychiatric profession has continued. Critics of psychiatry have repeatedly asserted that the profession misled the public. And Pies, a scientist they're referencing, has continued to claim that the profession was not responsible for promoting the theory. Psychiatrist David Healy also argued that the lowered serotonin story took root in the public domain rather than in psychopharmacology, and that researchers only used the language of lowered serotonin as a form of a symbol referring to some physiological abnormality that most still presume will be found to underpin melancholia, although not necessarily primary care depression. However, Healy also acknowledged that the serotonin myth had co-opted doctors and patients, and plenty of evidence now confirms that doctors use the idea of an underlying chemical imbalance or serotonin abnormality to justify the prescription of antidepressants. Unquote. So this is interesting because for the previous episode that we did on this, I did listen to a couple of podcast episodes like by psychiatrists and psychologists where a psychiatrist Oh, God, I can't even remember if they were psychologists or psychiatrists because it was months ago. But the person in the episode actually did say something along the lines of like, yeah, like the chemical imbalance theory like is inaccurate. We use it amongst each other for like a simplified discussion, but I would never tell it to anybody as facts. Like it's shorthand almost. But again, it's one of those things where it's like, that's easy to say, but in a context where everybody believes it, you can't just be like saying it. Be like, oh, but I know it's not real. And it's like, yeah. okay, but like, People, like, the way they approach their mental illness would completely change if they knew it wasn't real and you're yeah. not really educating people, so it's kind of weird. And, you know, the the bombshell article that we were talking about before, uh, after that came out, it's like all these psychiatrists are suddenly being like, oh, yeah, we knew that. We already knew that wasn't real. Yeah, this is not the, the flux you think it yeah. is. Like, we knew this. We knew this, uh, which is why the article that I'm referencing now is so fantastic because they brought the receipts. The fucking receipts. They brought the receipts. They're going off. They're You know, this is just... <laughs> 
<laughs> it's so funny listening to you justify this. <laughs> I know. Well, it's just it's just so exciting because they uh, did a, you know a comprehensive analysis where they went through a bunch of articles, surveyed the most relevant ones, and then broke them down. Uh, so I think they had sixty articles here, and they kind of tier them. They rank them by the degree of support for the serotonin hypothesis uh, that they convey. This is literally power ranking psychiatrists <laughs> by how much they believed in the serotonin uh, theory. <laughs> yeah. And just to break it down, uh, among the 60, it seems that only two of them discounted uh, the serotonin hypothesis uh, and 27 of them had unequivocal support for serotonin having a direct role in depression. You know, and then 15 of them, you know, said there was a, a, a causal pathway. So only two of them said that it was discounted. The rest of them, you know, either said that there was some relationship or there was a direct role. So clearly all these psychiatrists that were saying that they didn't believe it have been lying. This is some bullshit. Yeah, because people they have plan. pulled up their fucking studies have been like, um, you, this is not what you said. This is not what you ago, said. Or a few years ago. So anyways, I just wanted to bring this up because we were right. <laughs> we were right. Is this just a long version of saying I told you so? I told you so. But no, it's just, I think it's interesting because I think we're going to see a shift in the discourse, essentially, from here on right. forth. Well, a lot of people are going to be distancing themselves from this argument, acting like they never believed it. Yeah, That's saving face. True. Saving face. But really, this has been peddled for a long time. And as this article gets into, it's been peddled because it has served Big Pharma. Yeah, serve the industry. It's peddled because it makes money. Like, like, if you didn't believe it, then why have you over-prescribed these medications? Yes, I actually wanted to say that about, you mentioned earlier doctors. So, like, psychiatrists were saying that they never believed it, but it's clear that a lot of doctors did, like, just GPs. And I find that really interesting because I know in my circles that antidepressants are incredibly over-prescribed. You know, if, even from personal experience, like, I've had doctors where I've talked to about feeling depressed and said, you know, I want a mental health plan. And they're like, oh, I can just prescribe you antidepressants. Yeah. Is there like a specific thing in your life you're trying to overcome right now? No, then you don't need therapy. You just need antidepressants. And I like have so many friends who are just like at like 17, 18, gone to a GP because they are struggling with their mental health and they've just been put on like SSRIs. And so it's really interesting because I think a lot of GPs do believe in the chemical imbalance theory and the way they prescribe SSRIs is like the exact same way they prescribe antibiotics and like steroid creams Mm. and like any other medication. They're like, oh, like clearly you just need this. You just need this thing to fix your issue, which is like not how mental illness works. And you often do need therapy alongside your antidepressants. Like something I learned in my psych minor, which has honestly stuck with me for life because it was such a jarring thing that one of my lecturers said was that antidepressants, not always, but a lot of the time should be taken in conjunction with therapy because they don't stop you from having like negative thoughts. They just alleviate physiological symptoms of depression and the suicide rate for people who are depressed on antidepressants but not taking therapy are higher because they are just given the physical energy to then go and do the self-harm that they were already thinking about doing and it was like really jarring in my lecture and then I was actually having this conversation with a bunch of my co-workers at pedestrian who like you know have had experience with the same thing and they were like yeah like that is true i can speak from experience antidepressants don't fix your issue they alleviate symptoms 
and you need therapy alongside your antidepressants to then manage the thoughts and feelings that come with your mental illness. Antidepressants are overprescribed like Panadol (laughs) because clearly there is not a lot of education on how the fuck mental illness works. And a lot of that was probably on purpose, especially in America. I can, I think we can say quite confidently because it's just a moneymaker. So I think it's a little bit different in Australia yeah. because the way pharmacology works here is different mm. and we don't have as much of a privatized health industry. What I wanted to ask you, because you said there's going to be a big shift in the discourse. And I wonder if that shift is only going to be in the medical community or if you think it's going to reflect in like just everyday people's lives. Because even with our last episode, like, I don't think a lot of people are super aware of the chemical imbalance theory being a myth. I don't think it's something that's on the average person's like mind. And I do wonder if it'll filter through or not. Because even like with these articles, like they're in the news, but nobody in like real life was talking about it. I feel mm. just from our own, like there's nobody. And I, I'm a journalist. I work in the news yeah, and know, no one was fucking talking about it. Perhaps that's true. Maybe I'm over optimistic and perhaps I overestimate, you know, how much of this will leak into the more kind of mainstream public domain. But, like, I just don't see how this theory can continue to uh, parade around after such a complete debunking. Yeah, I guess, yeah, what my hopes are is that people, like, actually learn from this and, like, read about it and, like, it filters into their little filter bubbles because the the theory is well and truly debunked. Like, I don't even think, like, we're not even debating the trueness of the theory because it's debunked. Like, what we're debating now is, I guess, whether people will learn from that. Yes, and what I do want to mention... What I think is important to mention uh, is that SSRIs do work. People experience them. They do treat you. They do treat you. But the question is now, why do they work? It's almost like we don't know why they work now. Because the theory was, why do they work? It was because serotonin was the cause of depression. But now, because that hypothesis has been debunked, it's not like they have another theory. A new theory has to be constructed. Yeah, because the idea is, okay, Like I think there's no... No one's saying that there is no such thing as low serotonin when you're depressed. The question is, why does it get low in the first place? Yeah. And why do SSRIs improve the situation? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's it's, we should make our like take clear because I don't want anyone to feel like I'm undermining the treatment that they use for their mental illness. Like, yes, I fully believe that your antidepressants are helping you. And if you take them, that is so fine and do what works for you. But also, like, we should be critical of, like, big pharma. And also, we should, like, look into things like this. It's, like, been debunked by actual psychiatrists. Like, we're not smarter than them when it comes to these issues. It's debunked by actual scientists and we should, like, learn from that. Because I do want to say that I feel like there is a bit of resistance to unlearning the chemical imbalance theory. Uh, to people who are attached to it. And it's like, look, we can't be peddling pro-science when we talk about shit like vaccines and then ignore science when we get attached to things like the chemical imbalance theory. Like, we got to be consistent here. But yeah, like, that's the the little update. I guess the thing is, the chemical imbalance theory is a myth. So if you want to re-listen to our episode or read more about it, you should. And we told you so. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Hey there, it's Mitch from the future recording from my iPhone. We still haven't really sorted out the Patreon stuff, so we won't go through that today. We'll get it fixed up soon. But anyways, back to the regular outro. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official. And give me a follow if you liked today's episode.
And follow my Instagram at mishes.miscellanea for discussions around film, books and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions that you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at here'sathingthepodcast at gmail.com. And please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. Cool. Bye. Bye. Bye.